Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul was desirous to visit the ecclesia of Jesus Christ in the city of Rome. Many believe that he was wanting to do a stop there en route to Spain. But be it as it may, prior to arriving to Rome, it's as though he writes a preemptive letter a preemptive account of his version of the gospel, lest he gets to that community in Rome, to those believers in Rome, that Jewish and Gentile community of folk, and find that their understanding of the gospel is contradictory to his, and perhaps a tension or a squirmish might arise. And he expounds most beautifully all of the principles and dynamics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It really gets beautiful in Romans chapter 8 when he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, that is a phrase that Paul uses over and over again throughout all of his correspondences to the church communities. The gospel for Paul was a blended union an intimacy, an organic indwelling of me in God and God in me. Paul is also the one that said, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It seems like Paul's understanding of the gospel is more of an issue of union than an issue of just being forgiven and going to heaven. For Paul, it was intimacy with God now, living in God today. And it's as though he drew strength from an inward reality. He was in Christ, and he believed Christ was within him. And if we look at the narrative of this man's life, we can only say, wow, look at the strength Look at the rich supply that was given to this man. Was it just positive thinking? Was it just self-will, grit, and determination? Or is there more to the story? Is there actually someone fueling Paul from within? Not a law of legalism and a checklist, but a living person. And that supply didn't cause Paul to suffer lack or burn out. He was filled with God initially. He was filled ongoingly, day in and day out, and he never ran dry. Beloved, this apostle paints a marvelous picture of the overcoming spiritual life. And if you're a man and woman of God, and you're growing in God, then we need to learn to live by this inward supply. We received the Holy Spirit, no doubt, the day that we began to believe in Jesus the Christ. We, we cannot say that Jesus is the Lord without even being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So yes, we received the Holy Spirit initially. But Paul lived as though God kept filling him. There was a one-time filling and an ongoing filling. There was the unlocking of a fountain within him. And then there was this flowing, this gushing, this river constantly within his being, which was none other than God in Christ, in Holy Spirit, supplying him. In this message, I want to continue this thought of Christ in you and you in Christ. Beloved, do you realize the immensity of that little phrase, in Christ? And as Paul would say in Colossians 1 verse 27, Christ in me is the hope of glory. That is the heart of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, is that sin clears the way for God now to indwell me, and not only my body being a temple of the Holy Spirit, but my very soul, my very spirit being filled with God, slowly sanctifying me, transforming me, sustaining me, empowering me to live the normal Christian life, the spiritual life, the godly life, and to live in the power of God. I hope this message encourages you that if you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, just thank the Lord for that. But we can ask the Lord for more. Spirit, fill me again. Oh, Lord, strengthen me again. Oh, Lord, supply me again. I hope and I trust this message makes you cry out to God for a filling, for an enrichment this very day. Romans chapter 8 teaches us this lifestyle of being in Christ versus in the law or in the flesh. Here it is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That little phrase, in Christ, is so important because that is at the heart of the New Testament. The New Testament is not just about confessing Christ. Do you know that even the demons confess Christ? In the book of James, it says that even devils confess that Jesus is the Christ. And they shake. They fear as a result. So it's not enough to just say Jesus is Lord. I may not have told you this. I think now is as good a time as ever. But I have a parrot at my house by the name of Polly. And when you guys come over for coffee soon... Um, you will meet Polly. And Polly has been trained to be a confessor of Christ. So you will hear Polly. He sits there and all he says day and night, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And Polly is a Christian. Amen. Because he confesses Jesus is Lord. But when I asked Polly, have you received the indwelling spirit of Jesus whom you confess? You know what he says? Jesus is Lord. He has no clue what I'm talking about. Beloved, we have such a situation 
in the book of Acts chapter 19. So turn there with me. As the Apostle Paul, the minister of the new covenant, this preacher of the gospel of believing into Christ and Christ coming into you as he is traversing the known world of his day, he comes to um, a Greek city by the name of Ephesus in chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And um, I want you to notice how marvelously this is written down so that we can learn from it what is the heart of the gospel. He's going to encounter a group of people who, in a way, are the confessors of Christ. But Paul is going to ask him a rather provocative question, and I want you to focus on that question. Acts 19, verse 1. Now, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper districts, he came to this city called Ephesus, and he found some disciples there. You'll see in context in just a minute, these disciples were followers of John the Baptizer. And John the Baptizer at one time said, follow the Lamb of God. He introduced the Messiah, the Son of God. And so, in a way, they're disciples, they're believers, but only by way of introduction. So they're sort of in the baby stages of the spiritual life. Notice the very first thing, as Luke narrates this for us, that the Apostle Paul asks of these disciples. It says in verse 2, Paul spoke to them and he said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed. Notice the two things there. They believed the word of John the baptizer regarding the coming Messiah. They're believers. They are even followers. There's even the phrase there, Talmudim. They're disciples. They are in the regulation of John the baptizer, in the flow of John the baptizer. These are followers. Paul does not celebrate with them that they're confessors. Yay! Little hand clap for you confessors. He cuts straight to the, to the, to the chase. And he, he says, Did you, when you believed, receive the Holy Spirit? That is, you've confessed Christ, but has Christ come into you? Can you see that this is the gospel for the Apostle Paul? It's not just that you come to Christ. Has Christ come to you? Notice their response. They say, on the contrary, we've never even heard of such a thing as the Holy Spirit. In other words, what are you talking about? We thought the Christian life, we thought the spiritual life is to confess uh, Jesus and be followers of John the Baptizer. That is, we're followers of a man and a movement. They're not even doing that part correctly. Really, the gospel is about becoming the disciple of Christ exclusively, not of man, or messages, or ministries, or movements. So they even started off on the wrong foundation there. But then furthermore, they say, in our spiritual life, we've never heard of an indwelling spirit, that something should come inside of me. 
And it harkens back to Jesus' call in John chapter 7 on this particular festival where people are eating and drinking and making merry. And he cries out in John 7, If there's an ache in you that this festival cannot fill, if there's a void in you that food and drink cannot fill, and you're in touch with that reality, then I want to tell you, if you believe and come to me, I will give you this inner filling. I will do something for you within. And so here in Acts 19, you see a kind of a spiritual movement that has evolved that is confession rich. People are even following disciplined, which is the root of the word disciple. But inwardly, there's a void. And beloved, hear me, if you are not filled inwardly, you will continue to miserably be under this cloud of condemnation. And I have met Christians who can say, like my parrot, Jesus is Lord, like these disciples, Jesus is Lord. But there is no inward filling. That is, their heart is closed. That is, there's not humility. There's, there's pride, maybe. There's resistance. Yet they confess Jesus because they think that is a ticket to heaven. And so they gleefully confess Jesus because they're afraid of, uh, let's say, the judgment to come. And so they're confessors of Jesus. But there's no inward richness and supply. And so I've met believers who live a miserable life, constantly running and hiding and in fear of God, constantly wondering, does God love me? And yet God has a mission for them. God has a mandate for them. God has purpose for them. God wants to use them. But they do not receive the inward filling. There's a blockage. So come back to Acts 19. We've never heard of the Holy Spirit. And we have heard this from the mouth of modern believers over and over again. What do you mean, Holy Spirit? Who are you talking about? That tells me that this gospel of a spiritless indwelling is still alive and well. People still preach a gospel where all it means is you believe and confess Jesus and that's it, you got your ticket to heaven. Not so fast. There's more to the story. We've, we've never even heard. So then Paul says to them in verse 3, Then pray tell, how were you baptized? Because for Paul, being baptized means you come out of the old way of living and you come into Christ. That's what baptism means for, for Paul. It's an issue of coming out of sin and death and into this new covenant of Christ. So he says, then how were you baptized? It was just assumed that Christians get baptized at that time. For Paul, it was very simple. When you're a believer, you go through this baptism, through this death experience symbolically, because literally it happened to you. Now you act it out and you come into Christ. So Paul cannot understand. And this was a smart man, but he is stupefied. So how are you baptized? So they say, 
we were baptized into John's baptism. Like we're followers of John the baptizer. You find that in Christianity. Who do you confess? Jesus. And who were you baptized? Oh, in this church. In that church. I'm a follower of this denomination. I'm a follower of that man. This minute. We, you already have it in Acts 19. And Paul, as bright as he is, he's just dumbfounded. What do you mean? You're a follower of John. Look carefully at verses 4. And Paul said, yeah, John baptized you with a baptism of repentance. Telling the people that they should believe into the one coming after him, into Jesus. In other words, John's baptism was not a baptism of identification with Christ. It was just a baptism to say you're sorry for your sin. And you see, a lot of people are baptized in that understanding. I'm just sorry for my sin. But there's no power that comes into them to live an overcoming life. So people get baptized again and again, and they feel sorry again. I sinned. I sinned. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll get baptized again. And they try a new church and a new formula and a new uh, baptism and a new man and a new movement and a new ministry. And they're just staying sort of in that side of the river. Paul's idea of baptism comes from Romans 6. No, baptism is not an issue of just repentance. Baptism is an issue of coming into a whole new person. It's more than feeling sorry. It's coming into a new lifestyle. Being filled with the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 5. Obviously, a lot more happened than is recounted for us within these uh, few verses. But when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. What you need is to come into a man. If any man is in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This was Paul's burden. So, obviously, they found water. Paul marches them down to some river and he dips them and he says, Ah, this baptism is now in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And he harps on this issue. And notice verse 6. Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke in tongues and they began to prophesy. Putting the tongues and prophecy aside for just a minute, what has to happen? You have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In this instance, they began to speak in all sorts of unknown languages. And prophecy is they began to declare the mind and the heart and the ways of God. Not the mind and the heart of John the baptizer. Now they prophesy for Christ. They prophesy for, they speak for God. They were filled, supplied, and strengthened. As has been the case for many people there in the book of Acts. And they all manifested in tongues, and in worship, and in prophecy, and in miracles. There is a mission in front of them. And so they are filled with a river, a fountain, a supply, a power. And then it manifests in all sorts of ways. I think of a man by the name of Stephen. 
I think of a man by the name of Philip. It goes without saying the disciples who could not in their flesh do anything for God when the Holy Spirit came into them and upon them, these are all pictures of receiving the Holy Spirit, their lives changed drastically. And here you and I often are. We're like my parrot. Jesus is Lord. But I cannot turn the TV down. Ah. Jesus is Lord. But I cannot turn the computer off. Jesus is Lord. But I can't stop hating. Jesus is Lord, but I can't stop. Then we would say, are you a believer? Yes. Is your confession valid? Amen. But you've just never really opened up just yet. And maybe at one time you did, but you've not learned to be regulated by that river within. So now we have to go back and say, okay, let's confess the Lord again. But let's take the additional step of vulnerability, of humility, and say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in me. And that is what Romans 8 is all about. It's this chapter that explains to us this indwelling life. And you'll notice Romans 8, don't give a lot of things to do and don't do. There's not a big checklist, but you certainly see all over it. You have to set your mind on the Spirit. And live now by that Spirit. I want to bring to your attention 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The context here is um, marriage and adultery and a life of sexual fornication. And it's, it's a big, big context. But right in the midst of this very difficult subject of human sexuality, the proper version thereof and the perverted version thereof, right smack dab in this difficult discussion, Paul (laughs) highlights one of the most amazing truths of the New Testament. And it's simply verse 17. But first, pick it up in uh, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take my body that belongs to Christ and make my body um, a member with a prostitute? In other words, your body is a temple. Your body is a vehicle for the presence of God, for the Spirit of God. So you will have plenty of sex, But just don't do it in a loose way, in a fornication way, in an adultery way, in a non-covenantal way. And that's the issue of the Corinthian people here in the culture of that time. It's just your body is for pleasure, so just live it loose. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Don't live loose. That's the issue here, the discussion. Verse 16, he says, Do you not know that when you are joined to a prostitute that you become one body. And, of course, reading that or hearing that, we would all say, duh. Paul's just describing the sex life here. So can you see the context? 
Verse 16, you become one flesh. But notice how he spins it right around to one of the most amazing truths of the New Testament. He says, even so, if your body becomes one with a woman or a man, even so, the person who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit. Say it. You're you're allowed to. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one with the Lord in spirit. Actually, the literal is just more emphatic. You become one spirit. That is, you enter into God, God enters into you. One spirit. This is what it means to be in Christ. In Christ does not mean you're Polly, my parrot, who just confessed Jesus is Lord. In Christ means like a man and a woman have sexual intercourse, That's actually a picture of what has to happen to your inner man. Your inner man has intercourse with God. To use the the image of sexuality, the discussion here, Paul spins it right around and he says, your inner man becomes one with God. And this is what happened in John chapter 20. When Jesus breathed into the disciples... He took his own essence, his own breath into the men of of that time. Christ came into them. They had already come into him by confession. Now there is an organic, mystical, spiritual union that takes place of which human sexuality is but a type and shadow. So we also believe that human sexuality has to take place within covenant marriage. That is, I am forever with you. You are forever with me till death do us part. And based on that covenant, we can have intimacy. It's the same issue in spirit. God made covenant with you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus would even say, this cup is the blood of a new covenant. And in that new covenant, He does away with your former identity, your former defilement, your former running and hiding and your fig leaves and your cover-up and your religion and and your, your failure. He does away with it all. In fact, In a mystical way, when Christ died, you died with Him so that you could be raised with Him. So Paul's spirituality is one of union. It's not just that Christ died for me, it's that you died in Him. The two have become one. It's not just that Christ rose, I rose with Him. So Paul's understanding of the spiritual life is so much more than our modern understanding of just a confession and a ticket to heaven. He says, no, your spirit and God's spirit is actually one. One in covenant. God will never leave you or forsake you. And if you are joined to Him, You will not leave him and forsake him. You're stuck with God. Then why is that not our experience? Number one, 
We don't even know that God should come into us. Number two, we don't even know that we should tenderize our hearts and with humility walk before God. Number three, we don't even know that when we are baptized, we should be identified with Christ. We don't even know that there's this possibility to be in union with Christ. We don't even know that Christ lives inside of me. And so ignorance prevails. And because of this ignorance, my experience stays one of condemnation. Stays one of a defeated Christian life. And then we keep saying to ourselves, isn't the Christian life supposed to have a lot more pop and pizzazz? Then why doesn't it? Oh, maybe I'll try harder. And it just doesn't work. Come to the last sentence that we believe the Apostle Paul penned. Presumably, the very last sentence he ever wrote. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is in a Roman uh, house arrest. And somehow he is allowed to correspond. And he writes to Timothy several letters. And as best as we can understand and put two and two together, this is the last sentence that was written down on behalf of the Apostle Paul. It's a rather meaningful sentence. It's almost uh, the period behind Paul's interpretation and correspondence and explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He greets Timothy and he says, The Lord be with your spirit. So we say, where is the Lord? The average Christian would say, oh, He's in heaven. Yes, the body of the Lord is in heaven. The humanity that was risen from the grave is in heaven. Yes, the Lord in His humanity, the man, the mediator, is seated with God on the throne. A, 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 a human is seated on the throne. Uh, flesh and blood. A man glorified in flesh and blood is on the throne with God. But then we say, well, where's Christ? We would also say, aha, Christ is in me. Now how can He be in you? He is in you by way of His Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that a man went up to God and God came into a man? Oh, welcome to the gospel. What is the gospel? To believe into God, yes. In your human part, you believe into God with your mouth, and your confession and with your heart. But what is the gospel? The gospel is also God coming into me. Turn back to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus begins a discourse on how a man and God becomes one. And this will become the central theme throughout John 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. In John 17, He will pray for this oneness. But it's a central theme. In John 15, he uses the example of a vine 
and the branch becoming one, and that the life juice from the vine flows into the branches. And there's an interconnectedness. There's a coalescence. There's a oneness. And all of these chapters is basically just a discourse on this heart of the gospel. I, I want to be one with you. I want you to be in me, and I want to be in you. Look at John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may be with you. Circle that word, with you, in your Bible, if you will. He's going to be with you. But then Jesus interprets, in verse 17, the Spirit who is with you. It is the Spirit of truth, or we might also say the Spirit who is reality. Uh, this Spirit is going to make the things of God truthful to you. That is, He's going to make it real to you. And the world cannot receive this spirit. Aha, stop for a minute. If you remain in the flesh, you cannot receive the spirit. If you mind the flesh, you cannot receive the spirit. If you remain in love with the world, worshiping mammon, and the issues and the affairs of this world, you can't receive the spirit. So you have to be a believer to receive the spirit. Come out of the world, so to speak. I tell you, beloved, a lot of Christians in whom God has not dealt with regarding this issue of worldliness, you'll see they lack Holy Ghost power. They lack the realities of God. Why? Because this spirit that makes God real is not given to you when you stay worldly um, driven self-absorbed, grasping for the things of this world, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. You, you cannot receive the Spirit. That's why many of us, we may even confess Jesus, but we're stuck in a worldly, worshiping mammon, and we wonder, like, why is God not real? He's real to those who come out. Okay? So here it is. Uh, this is not given to the world, because it does not behold Him, nor know Him. Notice here, you have to look to the Lord. You have to call upon the Lord. You have to behold Him. Seek Him out, not the world. That's why I say to you in your younger years, seek hard after God in the days of your youth. Behold Him, know Him, run after Him, and you'll receive the spirit of reality. So Jesus, as He interprets the Spirit, He says, uh, the world doesn't behold Him, it doesn't know Him, but you know Him. You, the believer, should know Him. You should know who this Spirit is, because He abides, notice that word, with you. Circle that word, with you. He abides with you, alongside you. And then notice, actually, the next phrase. And he shall also be within you. Notice that phrase. He is with you, and he is with in you. 
Then in verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you without a supply, without a parent. I'm not going to leave you without myself. You're not going to just have to fend for yourself. Then he says, I am coming to you. The very Christ who goes up into heaven is the very Christ who came by the breath into people. So this is what it means to be in Christ. You believe into Him, and He crawls into your spirit. And that is the heart of Romans chapter 8. That's why constantly He will say, in spirit, in spirit, by the spirit, 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 spirit. Why? Because for seven chapters it was law, it was doing good, it was evil, it was sin, it was death. And in that matrix, there's nothing but misery. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Last sentence. This little phrase, in Christ Jesus, is replete throughout the writings of Paul. It's rather marvelous. Just about on every page of your New Testament, there is this little tag, in Christ, blessed with every spiritual blessing, in Christ, in the heavenly places. In Him I live and move. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Constantly, beloved, He will use this thing in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You can clearly tell Paul was not advocating another spirituality of what? He was advocating a brand new spirituality of who? Who am I in and who is in me.